Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Eve Bluent continues our series of messages on the Book of the Twelve, today looking at the prophet Habakkuk. And now, here's Eve. Thank you very much for the opening. That was uh, really good... Okay. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we come before you with humble hearts. Open our hearts to whatever word, message you may have for us. Help us be open to your message. Amen. So Habakkuk speaks of suffering and not understanding why God does what he does, or is apparent inaction. Though this passage speaks to a more of a nationwide situation than a personal situation, the following quote from C.S. Lewis speaks to the situation, whether personal or nationwide. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Hebrew 13.14 tells us that pain and suffering, they shatter our self-sufficiency and self-reliance. They remind us of how weak we truly are. They are reminders that here we have no lasting city. This is, I find that very interesting because the first song we sang was What a Day That Will Be. It goes to show how God is the architect of everything that we do. Um, he ties the, the opening to the message, whether we even planned it. Uh, in Hebrew 13, 14, it does say, For we here we have no lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. I recommend that when studying a book or chapter of the Bible, you first read it from end to end. The Bible chapters divisions were artificial. The original manuscripts had no chapters or verses. In 1205, Stephen Langton, an English cardinal, while in France, lecturing on theology at the University of Paris, created the chapter divisions that we use today. Langton later became Archbishop of Canterbury and was the architect of the Magna Carta, a royal charter that was meant to make peace between the barons and the king. In 1551, 1553, Rabbi of Estienne, a French printer, added the numbering of the verses as we know it today. Now, I would like for you to know that what we take away from this isn't the French connections, as they could inflate the heads of us who are French, but that these divisions of chapters are artificials. It is beneficial to read through the scriptures at least once, as if they didn't exist. When read without chapter and verse divisions, you can sometimes get a clearer understanding of what was meant to be communicated and at least an overall flavor of what the book is about. Once you've read it, then it is useful to explore the outlines that some have extracted from the scripture passage being studied. These are useful to obtain more insights and an overview. Always understand that these outlines are, were written by fellow Christians. They are not the same authority as the scripture themselves. 
Most commentaries provide good outlines, and sometimes they're useful enough that we don't need to read the entire commentary. The only one I show here, it was created by Dr. Vernon McGee on Habakkuk. I'll follow some of it, but not necessarily completely for the sake of time, and to reflect on my own insights, which I don't put on the same level as Dr. McGee by no stretch of the imagination. I'm including this outline for your own personal studies and benefit at a later time. I found it beneficial to myself. I also include the definition of perspicuity. Dr. McGee often used terms that I must look up, and this was one of them. I like by show of hands to let me know who knew what that word meant. Wow, this is a very honest crowd. <laughs> For a lot of Bible books, including the book of Habakkuk, it is difficult to nail down precisely when they were written. Knowing the historical context helps to understand the message, but God's word transcends time, and exact dates aren't critical. The reason these books are in the Bible is that God has something to tell us today. Habakkuk, using poetry, tells of his personal experience, and the final chapter is a song of psalm, of praise and adoration to God. I would like to focus on two themes in Habakkuk, repentance and how can God allow evil in this world. The book is very brief, but has a lot to say. It has an important contribution to make to Scripture. Dr. Vernon McGee said, important is not determined by how much you say, of what you say. When I read this, I took it as a personal correction to my style of preaching, where I try to pack three or more hours of information to 30 minutes. Hopefully, I'll do better with God's grace. At the time this book was written, Israel had already been divided into two kingdoms due to the stupidity and arrogance of the king Jeroboam. Ironically, he was the son of the wisest man ever known, Solomon. Solomon, though wise in many areas, was an extremely poor father, and so were many famous biblical characters. The two kingdoms were divided into Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. To make it somewhat confusing, the Northern Kingdom was called Israel and consisted of nine tribes of Israel. The Southern Kingdom was called Judah, even though it consisted of Judah, Benjamin, and Simeon. Simeon is seldom, if ever, mentioned, and we can only speculate the Northern Kingdom had already been taken into captivity to Assyria. Assyria was the kingdom that ruled most of the parts of the world until the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, and the Medes, the Medes concurred Assyria. Assyria had tried unsuccessfully to conquer Jerusalem. God had delivered Jerusalem from an army of 200,000 soldiers that laid siege to the city. During his siege, King Ezekiah prayed to God. O Lord God, I didn't move. Uh, can you? Okay. O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes. O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. 
For they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Ezekiel didn't trust in his own kingdom's strength, but in God. God sent in an answer through the prophet Isaiah. Basically, don't you worry, I'll take care of this. In 2 Kings 9.35-36, it tells of the outcome. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrian 185,000. When people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. That story is fascinating because it's one of those biblical stories that is confirmed by external documents. There are three Sennacherib's prisms in the world which tells us of the same event. The prisms were referred to are prism-shaped clay documents like the one shown here. The prism referred to uh, Sennacherib claims in these prisms that Hezekiah paid a great tribute including his daughters and wives and that is why he didn't destroy Jerusalem and take them away. The Bible says otherwise. And that does tell that Sennacherib went back empty-handed, humiliated, and eventually killed by his sons. I like the story of Ezekiel, because even though he was considered a good king, he had his low moments, but repented. And we'll see that this whole theme of Habakkuk also deals with repentance. After which God relented from bringing judgment to him in the silent kingdom. We all have low moments before God, and once we repent, God will restore our fellowship with him. Second Chronicles 32, 24-26 In those days, Ezekiel was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Ezekiel did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, wrath was moving over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Ezekiel. There are numerous biblical examples of God relenting from judgment due to repentance. The story of Ezekiel and Nineveh are just a few of many such examples. There are 64 uses of the word repent in the Bible, Fifty-four of them are in the New Testament alone. Repentance is essential to reconciliation with God. Even after God has passed judgment, when repentance has taken place, the prophets speak of God restoring the people. There are over 300 occurrences of mercy and merciful in the Bible. It speaks of God. Restoration by God is a very important theme in the Bible and is tied to repentance, especially in the writings of the prophets. Some examples are in the books of Jonah and Jeremiah 18.1.10, but one I particularly like is Ezekiel. Ezekiel says, Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, why should you die, O house of Israel? 
At the time that this book was written, the Chaldeans were in power. In the southern kingdom, two bad kings followed Ezekiel. Then there was the good king, Josiah. After Josiah, the next 22 years before Babylon conquered Judah, there were four more kings. Every king was unfollowing God. And he was patiently hoping for their repentance. One of the commentators indicated that Habakkuk had a question mark for a brain. I like that analogy. I can really relate to that. Um, why, why, why? When we hear that, we think of toddlers. Many of us, if not most of us, have been at the receiving end of a questioning child, wondering when it would stop. If a person could earn their way to heaven by gracefully handling toddlers, wise, I believe my mom would have been one of them. By all accounts, I ask a lot of questions, even though often incomprehensible. The theory is that they're all asking these wise to make sense of the world around them. Habakkuk was trying to make sense of this, his situation or God's answers to his prayers. Given that this book is driven by wise, a few wide jokes are in order. Why did Adam and Eve do math every day? They were told to be fruitful and multiply. One more appropriate to today's subject at hand is, what did the classmates say when asked why they kept walking next to the same person at school? I was supposed, I was told I was supposed to walk by faith. In all, in all seriousness, before God, we're all like children. It is okay to question Him. If you have issues with God, talk to Him. God welcomes questions and didn't smite Noah and Abraham or Job for questioning and challenging Him. Just be ready to listen to what He has to say. I suspect that many of you, like myself, I've been on the receiving end of someone accusing you with the accusers not open to a reply. Sometimes they even said that they were not interested in what you had to say or that they already knew what you were going to say. Their mind was made up. They were just lashing out or venting. It is okay to vent and even lash out at God privately and directly with Him. If you're doing this in all sincerity, then I hope your heart and mine will be eventually open to hearing his reply. In verse 1 to 4, first Habakkuk asks why he appears indifferent to the iniquity of God's people. He asks, why don't you do something? O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble. For plundering and violence are before me. Their strife and contentions arise. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surrounds the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. We could be asking the same question today. There are all, there are all these evil nations around the world, evil people, and even evil within the church. God, why aren't you doing something? Why don't you put an end to all of this evil? Or even on a personal level, how many times have we asked God for help or deliverance and wondered if he's listening or when is he going to act? In verses 5 to 11, God reveals that he will send the Chaldeans, also known as Babylonians, to bring judgment to Judah and take them into captivity 
unless she repents. These verses express how powerful and evil the Babylonians are. Their power is their God. God, speaking of the coming judgment, says in Habakkuk 1.5, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. In Antioch, Paul quoted this passage when referring to those who would not follow Jesus. In Acts 13.38-41, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work in your days, I work a work in your days, a works which you will by no means believe, the one were to declare it to you. Paul is warning them that a judgment that no one would believe will come upon them unless they repent and believe in the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. In verse 12 to 17, Habakkuk didn't like that God would bring judgment through Babylon. He asked God, why would you use a nation more evil than your own people to punish Judah? How many times have we prayed for help from God, but the answer wasn't what we wanted? How many times have we said to God, that's not what I had in mind. How about this or that instead? Or, you know God, I was pleased. For Habakkuk, that was one of those moments. You can hardly find a person who at least wants to wonder why God permits evil. There's much evil in the world. You see evil in the cruelty of man towards man. But God will use evil like the cross where cruelty was allowed to, towards an undeserving Jesus, the Son of God, and turn it into something good like our salvation. Habakkuk's core question is why God permits evil to continue among God's own people. God's people were no longer following the teachings of the Bible. It was violence, abuse, taking advantage of others, dishonesty. All the things we still see today, even amongst God's so-called people, the Nazis were some of those so-called Christians. Even many churches in the West, and maybe elsewhere, have accepted in their midst what God considers evil. Not only, uh, not only ignoring it, but condoning it. There's no doubt that the Western nations, including our own, have turned their back against God. Should we, like Habakkuk, pray that God do something about it? Like Habakkuk, would we be shocked by what nation God chooses to bring his judgment? Those who hate God will challenge us with, you do not believe that a God love of love would permit evil in the world, do you? Do you think a loving God, kind in heart, would permit suffering in the world? Satan used a similar tactic with Eve in Genesis 3.1.5. Have God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You will not surely die. For, I, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This implied that a good God would not forbid them from something good. Satan wanted them to question the goodness of God. Why doesn't God smite the evil people and he permits them to prosper? Ezekiel, as we read earlier, explained that God would rather they repent than kill them. 
If God were to smite evil people, where do you think he should stop? Aren't you also evil? According to Romans, we all are. We all have sin and falling short of the glory of God. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks. They're all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They all have turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We may not think that we're as evil as Nazis with their World War II Jewish Holocaust or those who did other abominations like the killing of over a million Christian Armenians in Turkey around 1950. Even recently against Christian Armenians, the hand of Azerbaijan and their ally Turkey. Many other groups have suffered and are suffering unjustly at the hands of men. Let's not forget that our sins resulted in Christ's suffering and a death on the cross. Christ didn't deserve this. We did. But he willingly went to the cross so that we wouldn't have to and be able to partake in the hope of eternal resurrection and fellowship with him. Why does God allow the rich to get richer at the expense of the poor? This is a socio-economic question versus a spiritual one, but we live in both worlds, and God cares about the poor and the unfortunate. Go ahead and switch the slide. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My step had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73, 2-3 I've caught myself being envious of the prosperity of the wicked because God is merciful and doesn't always punish immediately. Evil people believe that he either doesn't care or doesn't exist and that therefore persists in their evil ways. We can't be tempted to envy the evil ones and question God's justice. During those moments, let's remember that true justice we deserve if it wasn't for Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Even some of God's people, after doing something evil and not getting punished by God, and that includes myself, may have thought he either didn't notice or didn't care, which encouraged more evilness. Ecclesiastes 8.11 because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of man is fully set in them to do evil. Jonah and Nahum all speak of God being merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy, thankfully for ourselves. His inactions at times is due to these qualities, and he, wish, he wishes that none of us perish. Second Peter 3.9 the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you and not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When it comes to the sins of others, we would like prompt judgment. But when it comes to our sins, we hope and plead for mercy. Just one more chance. And some time to change. 
with many more such requests every time we fail. Because we don't fail just once, but many times. In chapter 2, God answers that the righteous people of Judah will survive, but the unrighteous Chaldeans will eventually be destroyed. God wasn't finished with Babylon, but would judge her also. Verse 2-4 is probably the key verse of Habakkuk. Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews all quote from Habakkuk. You could say that Habakkuk 2-4 is their, the core of their message. The just shall live by his faith. Let's explore those three verses I've put in bold. What part of the verse stands out more uniquely in each verse? For as many are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Through faith being the emphasis. Romans 1.16 Oops, it didn't change. Want to change it to For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The emphasis being in the righteousness of God. Hebrew ten thirty six thirty eight. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul, my soul has no pleasure in him. Emphasis here being the just shall live. If you take the three key parts and put them together, you get something like true faith in the righteousness of God, the just shall live. Habakkuk 2 summarized that the just shall live by faith while the unjust Chaldeans will die. Put another way, the soul of the king of Babylon was lifted up with pride and that would have been his undoing in death. But the godly remnant of Israel would live because of their faith. Not Israel as it was, but the, the godly remnant. Habakkuk 3 is all about praise and glorifying God. The book of Habakkuk opens up with a question mark and ends with an exclamation point. It opens up in gloom and concludes in glory. In chapter 3, verse 2, Habakkuk wants God to slow down and rethink his plan to remember that he is a merciful God. There are many such occurrences in the Bible of people negotiating with God and appealing to the fact that he is a merciful God. Therefore, he should change his mind. That is okay. It reflects the image of God within us, which desires mercy for our loved ones. How many of us have loved ones who aren't following God, for which we ask God to intervene, but at the same time to show mercy? Babylon eventually conquered Judah and took its people back to Babylon. Contrary to what some may believe, the Bible is clear that God isn't done with Israel. Romans 11:11 11, 11 to 24 in summary says, 
Don't be arrogant in thinking that you've taken the place of the Jews. You may be removed. If they believe, they will be brought back. God isn't done with Israel. He's made eternal promises to them and will honor his promises. We can't fully comprehend God's ways. It says in Isaiah 55, 6, 9, Take the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, as the ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The Jews were later brought back to Israel. Yet a repeated pattern of falling away from God also came back. And then Jesus came for the forgiveness of sin. As a nation, God will still restore Israel. Those are solid promises from God that he will honor. This may be partially fulfilled today, but it will be completely fulfilled one day when they worship the risen Christ. When Babylon conquered Judah, it wasn't the first time that God used an evil nation to punish his people. The northern kingdom of Israel had turned against God and God sent the Assyrians to conquer them. After their conquest, God judged Assyria for their sins by having Babylonians and Medes conquer them. Eventually, Babylon was conquered and eventually also destroyed. Today, nothing remains of its greatness, though its hanging gardens were once counted as one of the seven wonders of the world. An important takeaway is that the prophets show how the government of God is integrated into the government of man. Could it be that one day God will send judgments against our nation using even more evil nations? There's an established pattern that shouldn't be overlooked. However, just as in Jonah's days, if a nation was to repent and turn back to him, he would likely forego judgment. Still today, the world is asking why God doesn't do something about sin. We know that God did over 2,000 years ago. If you haven't accepted what Jesus did for you at the cross for your sin. What is stopping you? God provided the only solution to sin, and that is Jesus' sacrifice. There is nothing that you can do to address your sins, but to come to the cross and accept Jesus' sacrifice for your sins. All you need to do is repent of your sins. To repent is to turn away from... I'm repeating myself, sorry. Jumping lanes. Are you not coming to Christ because you believe that your sins are too great for God's, for God's grace? God's grace is bigger than any sins you may have committed. Through this study we've explored, it's okay to question God and plead with Him. God is merciful, wanting everyone to repent versus bring judgment on them. And I just want to... This morning we were... Uh, um, Joe opened up... And he mentioned mercy and made, made me look up uh, something that uh, I want to share. You are God. This is uh, Nehemiah um, 9.17. You are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. God is a holy God. Let's remember that. He will bring judgment to those who don't repent. There is much evil in the world, and our response is to live by faith in God's holiness. Jesus told us in 
in John 14:27 Peace I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid and that just speaks to the situation in the world all over the world all the conflicts that are going and Hebrew 2.17 Tell us that Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest, ready to forgive us if we repent and accept his sacrifice for our sins. Thank you for listening. I would ask for Joe to come up and close in prayer, please. And then the, the worship thing to come up. Let's just bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for who you truly are. That you are a God that desires that no one should perish. That you are righteous and you are holy and you are just. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided for us a way to come to you, to be made right with you, Lord. A way that we can come and repent our sin. And it was all through what your son accomplished for us on Calvary. That he gave of himself for us so that we could live by your righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.